Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. I trust you had a wonderful Lord's Day afternoon, and you're looking forward to God's Word tonight. Let's take our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 14, if you would please. Luke chapter 14. Let me echo the words of your pastor and also Brother Ball, uh, the close relationship and the love that we have at Baptist World for the folks with IBM and your church family. Thank you for allowing your pastor to serve on the board of Baptist World. You know, sometimes people wonder, what is a mission board? Now, you have one of those at your church, so you probably have an idea of what that looks like, but Baptist World is a little bit different. Uh, Our board is made up of 32 pastors from around the United States. Uh, They each pay their own way twice a year to come for gatherings, April and October, where we appoint new missionaries. We have just under 300 adult missionaries serving in 51 countries, and a number of those a partner with folks from IBM. And we do count it a great joy. I always like to remind folks that mission agencies do not send missionaries. Local churches send missionaries. And we serve, as does your board, to serve local churches in helping their missionaries get to the field and to be successful on the field. And so Ruth and I have enjoyed very much uh, 14 years leading uh, the work at Baptist World. And then we transition our new executive director, Dr. Ben Sinclair, was 21 years in uh, the western part of Africa in Cameroon. And he and his family uh, felt led of the Lord in the providential circumstances to come and be our new director. And Ruth and I have transitioned into a new role. It's called Missions Mentor, as your pastor said. I was uh, answering a question of one of the men this morning. He said, just what do you do? And I said, well, think of us as about a third evangelist, a third uh, missionary, and a third pastor, and that'll pretty much describe what we do. And so we serve missionaries. I tell people I am the the CFW of Baptist world. That means chief foot washer. And so we wash the missionaries' feet, and it's a joy to be serving them. I do have on the table, as you go out on the left, uh, some prayer bookmarks, and uh, they look like this. Uh, They are bookmarks, and if you read real books... Uh, and some people still do, uh, you can take one of these and use it as a bookmark and be reminded to pray for us. Now, if you don't read real books, uh, then put it on your refrigerator and uh, pray for us as if it were a prayer card. We would really appreciate that very, very much. Tonight we're looking at what I've entitled the three-legged stool of discipleship. Now, if you weren't here this morning, I pointed out that I grew up on a farm in Tennessee, and very early I began milking cows by hand. And to do that, you have to get really close to the cow. And a two-legged stool is worthless. It'll fall over as soon as you stand up. A four-legged stool gets between you and the cow, but a three-legged stool is absolutely perfect. And I made the analogy that there is a three-legged stool in the Word of God, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the epistles, that really, if you take one of the legs out of those three legs, you will be removing the essential nature of New Testament missions. 
If you add to those legs, you'll be confusing what missions is. And there's a lot of confusion today about that. So many people today call themselves missionaries when they really do not fit the biblical role. So I pointed out this morning, as Brother Alfaro said very well, that the three legs of New Testament missions are evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And that will be our model for this morning, tonight, and tomorrow night. And then on Tuesday night, we'll conclude my part in the services in talking about the nature of the sending church. Uh, And we'll be looking at Acts chapter 13 for that. So I hope you'll be here for each service and that these will be a tremendous blessing to you. Luke chapter 14, we want to begin reading in verse 25 as our Lord is giving a challenge to his disciples. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Let's pray tonight as we open God's wonderful word. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding tonight in this very critical area of discipleship. And Father, I pray that we would not uh, think in the ways of even our our good brethren who are confused about missions, but Lord, that we would think biblically tonight about this core issue of discipleship. Father, give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure most of you understand that the term disciple is used consistently throughout the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the epistles relating to those who follow Jesus Christ. Christ used the term The apostles used the term. The early church used the term. As a matter of fact, in Acts 11, 26, the disciples were called disciples before they were first called Christians at Antioch. So this word disciple is a very ancient word for the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It literally means, in the Greek language, a taught or a trained one. And I am very glad today for churches that understand that the core of New Testament missions is discipleship. Because actually, in some of the Great Commission texts, it is taken for granted that God's people will be evangelizing. And the command is literally to go and make disciples. And that implies, of course, the planting of churches and the training of leadership for those churches. But what I found today in some of our modern discussion about discipleship 
is that there is an overemphasis in many of our churches on the idea that discipleship is communicating knowledge to God's people so that they will be instructed in Christ. Now, that's certainly necessary. But folks, discipleship is far more than instruction. It is actually training. And we as American Christians are to be making disciples in our churches. We are to be training them. We're to be teaching them. We're to be helping them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely critical also on the foreign mission field. But I'm afraid sometimes we have forgotten what the end goal is in this matter of discipleship. And Christ is addressing it in this passage. Now, before we get to the text and our outline, let me say that, uh, that the outline is not original. I, I gleaned it from an evangelist who's now with the Lord. His name was Stephen Olford. And I really liked uh, his points that he made and the three main points of the outline. And I was, I was struck tonight by, by looking at uh, the quotes during the offertory that uh, Borden of Yale, who went and gave his life in Egypt before he ever got to China, used very much the same outline for giving his life on the mission field. And so this is nothing new tonight, but we need to understand that the end goal is not just instructed people. The end goal is true followers of Jesus Christ. So tonight we want to see that this is the case. Now let me point out again a little background before we look at the verses. There is a difference between salvation and discipleship. Uh, you can be saved without becoming a disciple because we know that you become a disciple by following. And folks, you're not saved by following. It's not of works. It is all of grace through faith in Christ. God wants every believer to be a disciple, and every believer should be a disciple, and God is going to be working in every real believer's life to bring them to discipleship. And yet we all know that there are those who struggle in this area. There are churches that struggle. So the reality is that we must first have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ before we can have an instructional relationship with Christ. We understand that there is a lifelong responsibility, if we've trusted Christ, to be following him, and that lifelong responsibility has requirements, and Christ is giving the requirements in this passage. So the multitudes are following Jesus, but Jesus knows that not everybody in those multitudes really are trusting him. He knows, as it says at the end of John 2, he knows what is in man. So Jesus turns to the multitudes and he says three things. He says, if you do not meet these requirements, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say it's hard to be my disciple or it'll be a struggle for you to be my disciple. He said, if these things are not true in your life, you cannot, you are not my disciple. Now, the Lord Jesus was not talking about perfection as if we were doing all of these things perfectly because none of us do. As a matter of fact, as I pointed out last night at the banquet, we are all broken people who need God's grace, and there is none righteous, no, not one. And yet, if there is not a heart commitment to these three areas we're talking about tonight, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And our goal on the mission field is not just to make a bunch of people uh, into followers of Christ who have been evangelized and know right doctrine. We want them to love Jesus Christ and to meet the same heart requirements of real discipleship. So what is the three-legged stool of discipleship? Number one, if we would be his disciple, there must be no rival in our lives. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. During the European feudal system of the Middle Ages, a lord of the land, of, of the region where the people served, where the, where the serfs were on his land, he caused them to give a pledge of allegiance to him as their lord. And what he promised them, he promised if they would pledge allegiance to him, he would provide them with security, he would provide them with land and a house. And what they gave to him, when war came, they would fight in the battles on behalf of their lord. And the worst thing that a serf could do in the feudal system in a time of war was to betray his lord. It was a crime punishable by death. And Jesus Christ is saying, if we have been saved, if we belong to him, we are to pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ absolutely and unconditionally. And we're to go to war for him and to serve him. And we are not to defect in that. There is to be no rival in our life. Now, we understand this concept that Christ mentions in verse 26. He talks about all of these family relationships, and he says, Yea, if you don't hate all of those people and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. Now, we know that Christ is speaking here in comparative terms. He is not speaking in absolute terms. Jesus does not want me to hate my wife. He wants me to love my wife. He's commanded me to do that. I don't believe Jesus wants me to hate my father and mother and my children and, and the brethren. We're to love the brethren. So it is not an absolute statement. It is a comparative statement. And I'll illustrate it this way. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. My wife hates McDonald's, but she loves Panera Bread. Now, my wife is not a psychopath who every time she sees Ronald uh, on a picture, she wants to go over and choke him and burn him. It's not that kind of hatred. And loving Panera doesn't mean that, you know, she, she fantasizes and meditates on Panera. No, it's a comparative term. You know, compared to McDonald's hamburgers, she loves Panera. And we understand that type of human language. So Christ here is giving a comparison, and he is essentially saying this. Let's work through it in our minds. I want you to work through it in your mind. I want you to think of your father and your mother and your brethren, your spouse, your children, grandchildren. We may have a father and appreciate his loving leadership, but he must not rival our Lord. We may have a mother and praise her loving graciousness, but she must not rival our Lord. We may have a wife and delight in her loving affection, but she must not rival our Lord. We may have children and grandchildren, and by the way, I'd be glad to show you pictures if you'd like to see them. We may have children and grandchildren, and we bask in their loving devotion, but they cannot rival our Lord. 
We have brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we rejoice in their loving friendship and fellowship, but they cannot rival Jesus Christ. And we may have a job, a hobby, or ambitions, which that is encompassed in the concept of our life, and we may enjoy them, but they must not rival our Lord. Now, folks, this has so many mission applications. If there are grandparents who give their children a hard time when those children are called to the mission field and they're going to take the grandchildren, if you give them a hard time, you're violating this truth because your children or whomever it is in your family, if they're following the call of God, you better make sure don't put yourself in the place of being a a rival of Jesus Christ. It's very, very critical. The story is told about missionary Raymond Edmond. He was a missionary in Ecuador, and he was planting churches, doing a great work for the Lord. This is from his biography. And he had a man in his church who felt called into the gospel ministry, but his wife was being resistant. This was a national Ecuadorian. And the man was working with his wife, and, and Brother Edmund was working with her, but she was resisting and told her husband, if you become a national pastor, I will resist you. She didn't threaten to leave him, but it was pretty much that implied. So one day, the national man showed up at Brother Edmund's door with a bundle under his arm and with tears in his eyes, and he said to his missionary pastor, this bundle contains my working clothes. I left my employment today. I've surrendered to become a pastor. He had counted the cost, and he was concerned he was going to go home with what his wife would do. Brother Edmund quoted to him Mark 10, 29 through 30. He said this, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. Well, that story ended wonderfully because the man went and presented his decision to his wife. She resisted initially, but eventually she came around, and he became, he and his wife became a dynamic team in Ecuador for Christ because he said no one is going to rival Jesus Christ. You know, in our own family story, my wife's father Uh, was a young farmer from Colorado, married and with a baby, a new baby, and uh, God had called him to go to Bible college to become a pastor. And it didn't work out. He was going to Prairie Bible Institute in Canada, which was where his pastor sent him. And and so, so he went on to school and left his wife and baby back in Colorado until they could later on join him because of some circumstances. And you know, there were some people who were critical of him leaving his wife and new baby behind. But I remember my father-in-law telling me that he answered those people. He said, we expect soldiers in fighting the battle for their nation to be willing to be absent from family and to make those sacrifices. How much more should we be willing in the will of God and under good pastoral counsel to be willing to be separated from our family if necessary to do the will of God? No rival in our life for Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.18 says that in all things, Christ must have the preeminence. So if we would be his disciple, there must be no rival in our life. Yes, we love others, 
but we love Jesus the most. And then the second thing our Lord said, if we would be disciples and if we would make disciples, it's not just about helping people to be able to know the great doctrines of the faith. It is bringing them to where there's no rival in their life relating to Christ. But secondly, if we would be his disciple, there must be no refusal. Look at Luke 14, 27. Jesus gives the second uh, condition for discipleship. He says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not hard. It's impossible. If you do not make a conscious choice as a believer to take up your cross and follow Christ, you can't be a disciple. The disciples no doubt had seen a man take up his cross. Uh, They were Jews, and they had seen the Romans put people to death, and they knew that it was a one-way street, and that person would never come back. They knew it was the way of death. Now, this word cross that is used here is a very interesting word. It is the Greek word stauros, and it is a word that does not have its origin in the Greek language originally, but actually in the ancient Persian language. As a matter of fact, though the Romans had somewhat, if we could say it in a very wicked, sadistic way, had perfected crucifixion, they did not start crucifixion as a means of death. We read actually in our Bibles in the book of Esther of the meaning of the concept of stauros. The word literally means a stake. And so in the book of Esther, you know the story. There was the the good guy Mordecai, and there was Esther, and there was the king, and there was the bad guy Haman. And Haman was uh, an enemy of God's people, and he wanted to kill the Jews and kill Mordecai. So he crafted a plan and he was going to have Mordecai impaled on a stake. Now, most of our Bibles call it gallows, but it's not the Western gallows of, you know, hang them by the rope by the neck until they're dead. As a matter of fact, the book of Esther tells us what this stauros, this cross, was. It was a pole 75 feet tall by which you went up on what we would call uh, steps or to the top, and then he was going to take Mordecai up to the top and literally on a sharpened stake was going to impale his body. That was the Stauros. But God in his sovereignty turned the tables and instead Haman got the point. You know the rest of the story. But folks, that word has its roots in old Persian language, and it is the concept of death to self. To take up the cross. Now that helps me because when I was first saved, I was, I was from an unchurched family. I was in a denominational church. I did not understand a lot. And I remember hearing a preacher when I was a young guy talk about uh, that I, I am to crucify myself. I'm to be dead to sin. And I thought, well, how do I do that? You know, I nail this hand over here. And how do I nail this hand over here? I, I struggled with that concept. But then I found the word stauros. And folks, I am to take my will, I am to take my life, and I am to impale it on the will of God so that I have no will of my own. Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. It's very interesting that there is a parallel in Paul's writings in Galatians 2 
and Galatians 5 to these words in Luke chapter 14. Perhaps Paul was thinking about those as he wrote. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to jot them down, if you're taking notes, uh, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20 that bearing the cross means being willing to die to the principle of the old life. He says it this way, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is the principle of the old life? The principle of the old life is not Christ, but me. That's the principle of the old life. And the principle of the new life, Paul says, is not I, but Christ. Death to self. The Lord Jesus says the same words or similar words in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, the instrument of death. Now, we tend to think in our English language of denying self, we tend to think in a very unbiblical way as to what that means. You know, denying self could be, well, I'm, I'm only going to have one Starbucks this week. That's denying self. As a matter of fact, most religions have a perverted view of self-denial or denying self, and they make it a religious act. For example, the Catholics uh, during the Easter season have something called Lent, and for Lent, you give up certain things, you deny yourself certain things, but you know that very soon you're going to go back and indulge in those same things again. So it's a temporary thing of denying self. Uh, the Muslims have the same issue. It's called Ramadan, and you know, you give up certain things for a period of time, but you know on the other side, we're going to indulge and go back to the old ways. And Baptists have something very similar. It's called revival meetings. And we often think, well, you know, I'll, I'll get right at the revival, but knowing in the back of your mind, <laughs> well, you know, I'll get past revival and I can go back to my old ways. Folks, it should never be that way. The reality is Christ is saying to deny self is to die to the old life. Now, we don't have time to develop the theology of, of our human uh, psyche tonight, but the reality, folks, is that though our old man is crucified with Christ, we still have something called the flesh. That Adamic bent inside of us, that when we see a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, we want to touch it. It's that part of us that lust and war in our members, and all of us have that lust and that flesh. But the reality is our old man has been crucified with Christ. What is the old man? It's the life that I lived before I got saved. That was put on the cross, and I've been made a new man in Christ. And yes, I have flesh, but I am to deny my flesh, my way, my old way, the passions and the purposes of the past, and I am to follow Christ. So here we find that Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It's not I, but Christ. Henry Martin said this, Lord, let me have no will of my own or consider my true happiness as depending in the smallest degree on anything that can befall me outwardly, but as consisting altogether in conformity to thy will. It means dying to the principle of the old life. 
But then in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul says that bearing the cross means being willing not to just die to the principle of the old life, but to die to the passions of the old life. Galatians 5.24, Paul says, They that are Christ, those who belong to him, and certainly his disciples, have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts thereof. Now, folks, every man in this room understands the battle with the flesh. Uh, It is in every one of us. If you read the journals of one of the heroes that was on the screen tonight, uh, one of the missionaries to Ecuador uh, struggled greatly with the lust of the flesh even while he was giving the gospel to the Alka Indians because we have something very awful inside of us called flesh. Every lady in this room, as a pastor over the years, the number one thing that ladies in our church struggled with was, was anxiety and insecurity, and they struggled with that, and it was something that warred against their soul. And it's a passion that Satan can use in the lives of ladies. But Paul says if you're going to follow Christ, you crucify the flesh with the affections and the lusts, the passions. The philosopher Seneca said this, if sensuality were happiness, beasts would be happier than men. But human joy is lodged in the soul, not in the flesh. So what do we do? We, we take up our cross We die to self, we put ourselves, we impale our own way and our own passions on the stauros, and we guard against being unfaithful to Jesus Christ. Some of you have perhaps seen this actual location if you've been to the Philippines, but several years ago there were scores and scores of people in the Philippines who were killed when a a dormant volcano erupted. The volcano had been dormant for 600 years. And suddenly, Mount Pinatubo came to action, and it took the lives of thousands, and it cost the American military over a billion dollars in property damage. It was a disaster. I believe it was Clark Air Force Base, if I remember right, that was there at Mount Pinatubo. And there was a volcanologist, uh, a Filipino man who was head of the Department of Volcanology, was asked, why was there such incredible destruction? Why did so many people die? Why was there so much property damage? And this is what he said. This is from the interview. When a volcano is silent for many years, people tend to forget that it's a volcano and they begin to treat it merely like a mountain. And folks, your flesh is a volcano. And you may have been having victory in your life for weeks, months, or years consistently, but you never let down your guard because there is something inside of you, an enemy within, that wants to work against your following Jesus. It's called your flesh. And it can destroy your testimony in a moment. So be on your guard. You bear your cross by dying to the principle of the old life and the passions of the old life. One of my heroes is a Civil War general by the name of Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was a great general in the eyes of the South. And I certainly do not want to debate the Civil War with anyone here. But Robert E. Lee was not really 
in my opinion, important because he was a great general. He was important because he was a great Christian. Robert E. Lee was a man of God. He loved his nation, he loved his wife and his children, and when the conflict began with the states in 1861, he was torn because he felt a loyalty to the Union, and he was actually offered the, the, the leadership of the Union Army by President Lincoln. But after looking it over, Robert E. Lee decided that he would stand with his home state, Virginia, and he made a decision that would cost him everything that he held dear. Douglas Southall Freeman, who wrote the classic work on Lee, it's four, bo- four volumes, ended the last volume with the story as Lee was near death and he made his last trip to northern Virginia. This is the story. A woman came and asked Lee, with a baby in her arms, if he would bless her baby. And I'm quoting from Freeman. In in northern Virginia, probably on his last visit there, a young mother brought her baby to him. He took the infant in his arms, looked at it, and then he said to the mother slowly, teach him that he must deny himself. That is all. Now, where did Robert E. Lee learn that? He learned it from Jesus Christ. And folks, whether or not we agree with the politics of that era... Christians must understand that if we're going to be his disciples, there must be no rival to Jesus Christ and there must be no refusal to do the will of God. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, or we cannot be his disciple. And then thirdly, as we move toward our close, I want you to see that the third thing, if we would be his disciples, no rival no refusal, and finally, there must be no retreat. Look at chapter 14, verse 33, where Christ gives the third statement. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Brother James mentioned this morning, you know, don't go out and sell everything you have and, you know, give it all up. He was absolutely correct. That is not what Christ is saying. As a matter of fact, Stephen Olford here says that the, the, the statement forsaking all means following the Lord without retreat. In other words, there's nothing that you have that will keep you from going forward with Jesus Christ. No retreat. You know, Pastor, I sometimes will ask young people in Christian schools, and I, I don't have it down for this week for the, for the message, But I'll ask them this question. If God were to call you to the mission field where there was no cellular service and no internet, would you be willing to go? Now, folks, think about that. This morning we heard a beautiful song. Folks, we, if we're called by God, we're, we're called by the one who chose the path of stars. What an amazing God. And if that God who calls forth the mighty thunder calls us, there must be nothing in the way. We forsake all and follow him. But I actually had a young person in one of the schools say, Brother Stedman, if God called me where there was no internet and no cell service, I would not go. And you know what that young person was saying? I have an idol in my life just as real as Molech or Baal in the Old Testament. 
And folks, if we have those kind of idols in our lives that we would not give up, if there's anything that would stop us from following Jesus Christ, we are not his disciple. And if we shortcut what discipleship is into simply people having an intellectual understanding of theology and we don't call them to have no rivals and and no refusal and no retreat, we are shortcutting discipleship. So no retreat. Now let's close by going back five chapters to Luke chapter 9. It's very interesting in this concept of forsaking all. Christ gives us three stories right back to back, which really illustrate what it means to have no retreat. So we're going to look at these and then we'll be done. But Luke chapter 9, look at verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Boy, that sounds like a real disciple, doesn't it? And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. What's Jesus talking about? In his sovereignty as God, he knew that though this man was very boastful about following him, that when the price of sacrifice came, the man would quit because it was too hard. Remember John Mark on the first missionary journey? He went with Paul and Barnabas. And after all the difficulties there on Cyprus, John Mark, as one commentator said, stuck out his thumb and all the way back to Jerusalem said, Mama, 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 and he quit. That's what the Lord's talking about in this man's life. So I label this, there is to be no tiring of the life of discipleship. You know, we do get tired in being disciples sometimes. That's why God has given us sleep and rest and and refreshment. It is work. It is hard. But we never retreat, even though the way gets rough. And all of you understand what I'm talking about in this matter of no tiring of the life of discipleship. And then number two, there is to be no trusting of self in the life of discipleship. Look at verse 59. And he said unto another, follow me. Jesus said to the man, you follow me, be my disciple. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Leon Morris in his book, The Gospel According to St. Luke, said this, with a little understanding of the background, it becomes evident that this young man's father had not just died, The Jews counted the burial ritual as very important, especially in relation to the receiving of the family inheritance. What this young man was saying is, Lord, I want to go back and I want to stay with dad until he dies and I want to get all my inheritance and then once I am financially secure, I will come and follow you and do your will. Now folks, don't misunderstand. I I think that if God wants you to be in secular work, and give your life to that, and someday you retire with benefits, and you say, okay, I'm going to use the rest of my life for the Lord, I think that's wonderful. But if you're in secular work, and God calls you to be a full-time vocational missionary, you better not shortcut God and try to trust in self when God is calling on you to trust Him. You need to go and preach the kingdom of God. There's to be no trusting in self and discipleship. 
John McNeil, the Scottish evangelist, was talking about this text, and he said, Why, this poor fellow wanted a gravedigger's shovel when our Lord was trying to give him a resurrection trumpet. And you know, if God's called you to full-time vocational ministry to blow a resurrection trumpet, and you do anything else, you simply have a gravedigger's shovel. We follow Christ. And then thirdly, verses 61 and 62, there is to be no tiring, there is to be no trusting in self, but there is to be no turning from the way of discipleship. Verse 61, And another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There is to be no turning from the way of discipleship. You know, this sounds good on the surface. Let me go tell them farewell. But Christ knew there was more there. This young man had allegiances to his home that he would not break. And he told them, you're not fit if you don't follow me. The late Ellie Maxwell, who was the president of Prairie Bible Institute years ago, and a very godly man, a very missions-minded man, wrote a book called The Conditions of Discipleship. He also had a ministry, by the way, in India, which was very significant, as I know uh, Brother Sproul and, and the mission has had here. But he wrote the story about converts in India being sidetracked by their families, which were Hindu. So let me quote from Maxwell's book. Often when converts from Hinduism inform their parents of their intention to be baptized, it is not long before mother and father travel to the mission house and plead with tears and threats that their children not take a step so fatal. Failing by this mean to shake their children's resolution, they become resigned to the fact their only stipulation is that the convert pay them one last parting visit to bid them farewell, which are at home. The request seems reasonable. After all, to refuse is to wound parental feeling. So though his heart is with his spiritual brothers in Christ, the convert announces his soon return after telling mother and father goodbye, and the convert goes, but he never returns. How often a farewell at home proves to be a farewell to Christ. End of Maxwell's quote. You see, the cause of failure in true Christian discipleship can be traced to the problem of looking back to the old life and letting its attractions draw you. There must be no retreat. We go forward for Christ, no matter what, in the will of God. It's very interesting back in Luke 14, 26, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus said, if any man... Christ made it very individual. You know, I could be tonight addressing this church corporately, and I would be justified in doing so on this topic. But Jesus made it individual. He's saying to you, and he's saying to me, are there any rivals in your life tonight? If there are, you're not my disciple. If there is any refusal in your life tonight to do the will of God, you know, sometimes we say, Lord, show me your will, and what we want to do is find out what it is, and then we'll decide if we'll do it. If, if that's your heart attitude tonight, you're not a disciple. And you won't be making disciples, by the way. 
And then finally, is there any retreat? Are you backing up on anything that God has given you to do? Are you determined by grace to go forward? Our commitment to missions must be a commitment to make true disciples both at home and abroad. But folks, we can't be making disciples unless we are disciples. It's an impossibility. So are you a disciple? And what are you doing to be engaged in making them? Let's bow our heads together.